Good afternoon, everyone. My name is Bharat Gopalaswamy, and I'm delighted to welcome you to the Atlantic Council. Um, with me, I have two. Um, I have Shuja Nawaz, who is our former director and currently a distinguished fellow at the South Asia Center. And I also have Vikram Segal, who is the chairman and CEO of the Pathfinder Group. And I think this is, a, as you've been noticing, we've been doing, um, we've ramped up our activity in Afghanistan with the help of Ambassador Jim Cunningham, and we just released a report last week. And with all this central to this is uh, another country in the region, Pakistan, and we want to focus this discussion today on Pakistan. And with, with uh, Prime Minister Nawaz Sharif's visit next week, I think that um, the discussion for us could be um, more, could be never be more timelier, and I would not waste much of a time. So first, what I would do is request Shuja Nawaz um, to give his perspectives on um, what the implications, uh, what the implications of the domestic security situation in Pakistan is for U.S. policymakers, and what the visit next week would entail, and what are the key areas that both the officials would discuss. And then I would drill it down to Ikram Segal, who is just who is from Pakistan, and to discuss the internal security situation, and I'd open the floor for discussion subsequently. Without further ado, Shuja, the floor is yours. Thank you very much, Bharat. Um, it's a pleasure being here again, and uh, also to share the stage with uh, Mr. Ikram Segal. Um, he and I were talking about how maybe we should do a roadshow, because uh, a couple of weeks ago, uh, when I was in Karachi, we were together on the stage uh, looking at the, the role of the Pakistan military and the transformation of the Pakistan military. That was uh, a well-attended affair of about 150 people, um, bringing businessmen out uh, on a day when they should be at home, at rest, was quite a, a feat. Uh, but it, it's good to have a quality audience here, and so um, I'm delighted to share with you some initial thoughts and I say initial thoughts because I'm in the middle of a nine-month study that is looking at the Pakistan counterterrorism and counter-militancy um, effort. Uh, and uh, this is funded by the USIP. And I don't think I've fully formulated my views on exactly where things are. But I can give you a snapshot of what I've, the trends that have emerged as well as give you um, what Bharat had asked me to do, which was to give you a progress report on where things stand and what they mean for the U.S.-Pakistan relationship, particularly in light of the Prime Minister's visit. Um, so as I said, it's too early to pronounce success or failure. So we can certainly look at the trajectory. Um, and some of the things that have clarified uh, to some extent can be identified, so I'll, I'll list some of those, and then maybe we can tease them out in the conversation after um, we made our presentations. Uh, so one of the features of this current effort is that much of FATA, the federally administered tribal area that is between Afghanistan and Pakistan, has been cleared of militant bases, uh, which means that the logistical supply bases, the training grounds, Etc. have been uh, removed, uh, the, they've been uh, disrupted, and many of the militants, predominantly from the Tariq Taliban of Pakistan, as well as some of the other militants, including 
those affiliated with Al-Qaeda, as well as uh, some of the Uzbek and the other um, foreign fighters that had found a home in Fatah, have really found it easier to go across the border into Afghanistan, which doesn't help Afghanistan because it pushes the problem over into Afghanistan and creates a problem for them. And as with the emergence of ISIS uh, and, and internecine warfare among these various groups, you're going to have a, a very hot border again. Um, so that will have to be resolved by both Afghanistan and Pakistan. Um, the Pakistani military has now moved to block a number of the uh, major passes between Afghanistan and Pakistan. Uh, but they don't have the ability to seal off the entire border for two reasons. One, they don't have the manpower or the, the technology to be able to seal that border. It's a very rough border. And uh, by one count, there are over 240-odd passes or ways in which Afghanistan and Pakistan are connected uh, across that uh, uh, frontier. Uh, the other, uh, and this was something I heard in my conversations with senior Pakistani military officials, particularly in, uh, in the northwest area of Pakistan, was that um, the Afghan National Security Forces don't have the strength uh, or the capabilities yet of setting up an equal number of border posts on the border so that you can have a coordinated approach to sealing the border. Uh, this has been a perennial problem with anyone trying to seal that border, and it's been exacerbated by the fact that the Afghan National Security Forces are now battling the Taliban in uh, other parts of the country, including uh, the north. So uh, you don't really have joint operations that are effectively being conducted inside Afghanistan or um, against the Afghan Taliban uh, inside Pakistani territory or in Balochistan. Um, in fact, there are no military operations in Balochistan at the moment. Uh, the Pakistani point of view that I heard from many different sources during my recent three weeks in the country was that there's a contradictory ask of the Pakistanis related to the Afghan Taliban, which is, do you want us to fight and kill them, or do you want us to bring them to the reconciliation table? Now, both are really not happening. And this is going to be an issue that is probably going to feature on the agenda and the conversations between Prime Minister Sharif and uh, the US administration, and between his ministers and the US administrations. A basic issue that I want to highlight is that despite all the pronouncements coming out of Pakistan, uh, and these are all based on good intentions, um, military action alone will not end terrorism in the country. I think uh, there, there is an issue when uh, this issue, uh, this particular topic is being oversold. I think it would be much more useful for the military to, to uh, under-promise and over-deliver on this, and then to try and find what else needs to be done to strengthen the civil-military collaboration so that you can then hand over to the civilians over time and let them uh, take over the clear, hold, build, transfer continuum at the appropriate time. Uh, as a number of senior military officials acknowledged in private conversations, they are still at the clear hold, hold, hold stage. Uh, there isn't the capacity 
to build or the capacity to transfer because the people that they would transfer to are not yet ready for the transfer. The other uh, point which is well worth making is that despite all the focus of attention on the military actions in Fatah, a number of actions have already started uh, in the hinterland. So what they call intelligence-based operations. Uh, soon after the Fatah operation, the Zarbe Azb, as it's called, was launched, uh, there were many coordinated operations that took place in the capital area, in Islamabad and surrounding areas. And there have been other operations that have been now discreetly launched in southern and central Punjab, according to official sources. It's very hard to verify all of these, um, but uh, these are uh, things that you hear from official sources. The other big operation that was launched is Karachi, and I think it's worth saying a few words about that. And Mr. Segel, because he lives in Karachi, is probably going to give us a much more granular look at what's happening there. But in my mind, Karachi is going to be the litmus test of the fight against terrorism and militancy. Because Karachi is a microcosm of all of Pakistan. It has more Pakhtun than live in Peshawar, and in fact, than inhabit all of Fatah. Five million plus Pakhtun live in Karachi. The total population is between 20 and 25 million. Um, and then you have the Sindhis, the Balochis, the Punjabi internal migrants, as well as the Urdu-speaking uh, descendants of people that chose to come to Pakistan when, when Pakistan became an independent state in 1947 from India. So uh, you have this melting pot, uh, which is responsible for somewhere between 40 and 60 percent of the generation of the GDP of Pakistan in terms of taxes and, and other revenue sources. Uh, it is really uh, the, the center of gravity of the Pakistani state and the economy. So if Karachi uh, works, then Pakistan works. If Karachi fails, then I think we have to worry about Pakistan as a whole. And what has happened there has been quite fascinating. You have a highly coordinated, highly intense, highly focused operation, uh, which has been primarily led by the military but which has been coordinated by what's called an apex committee. And these apex committees have been set up in all the provincial capitals. It involves the military and the civilian administrations. And they meet regularly, they look at the targets, they decide on the operations, and then they execute them. And in order to uh, bolster the police operation in Karachi, they brought in the uh, Sindh Rangers, uh, these, this is the paramilitary operation headed by a serving major general of the Pakistan Army. The current uh, uh, director general of the Rangers is uh, Major General Bilal Akbar, who's a hard uh, taskmaster, uh, extremely well organized, uh, and who, uh, who probably in another life would have been an excellent policeman because he understands exactly how these systems work in a large urban environment. And he's penetrated all the neighborhoods, uh, initially with patrolling, but now with permanent positions. And they now have 5,000 uh, rangers that are permanently in place, in place in the roughest neighborhoods in Karachi. So when I uh, mention uh, Leari, for those of you that know Karachi, 
you know, that was a hotbed of uh, the People's Party, their base, but also a hotbed of, <coughs> of uh, robbery and militancy and so on. And the same with the groups uh, that were supported by the MQM and by other parties. The Afghan Taliban, the Tariqa Taliban of Pakistan. Um, if you look at the statistics for Karachi um, for the last year, uh, you see an enormous drop-off in the, uh, the robberies, the killings, uh, the other terrorist activities, uh, so uh, kidnappings, for instance, have gone way down because of the, the presence of the, of the rangers. Uh, there are two very interesting public statements which I would recommend to you that are available on the web. One is by the Corps Commander of Karachi, General Navid Mukhtar, uh, while addressing the National Defense University delegation. It's in daily motion. You can Google it gives you a very clear roadmap of what they intend to do. And the other is Bilal Akbar, the DG Rangers statement on exactly what the end goal is. Because the question that is asked throughout Pakistan, uh, and when people found out what I was trying to do to understand the situation, they asked me the question, uh, can the military and can the Rangers sustain this effort? How long will they be there? You know. Uh, there was also a famous speech by, by President Zardari. Yeah. You know, a certain amount of anger and frustration at the military action uh, because it was affecting his party and his people, in which he said, look, you guys come for three years, meaning the army chief is there for three years. We are here forever. Uh, but nobody really knows uh, how long this is going to last. And that was a question I posed to many people that I talked to. And uh, one answer that I got was from a very senior policeman. And he said to me, he said, this military is very different from the previous militaries. Uh, most of these generals are very young. Most of them have fought many times in Fatah. And he said to me, they have borne the bodies of their fallen comrades on their shoulders. So they are committed to doing something about this. They don't want this country to, to deteriorate and get into the hands of the militants and the terrorists. So the bench is awfully deep, and there are a lot of young generals that will want to carry this work forward. Or at least that's what they're saying. But as I said, this is only a preliminary report. As we go back, we're going to find out exactly how much of the, the statement of intent is really being followed up or whether politics is going to come in the way, particularly next year as discussion heats up about the, the end of the term of General Rahil Sharif, the army chief. As I said, at the national level, you have had apex committees formed in Peshawar, in Quetta, in Lahore, as well as in Karachi. And I managed to speak to both civilian and military leaders in all the provinces except in in Quetta, I couldn't uh, find the time to, to get there, uh, just ran out of time. Um, the, at the national level, uh, the Intelligence Bureau, which is the civilian counterpart of the ISI, is involved in a lot of the planning. In fact, when the Karachi operation was launched, the Prime Minister showed up in Karachi uh, a year ago for, for almost four days. And the DGIB was there working with, with the military, with the Rangers, with the ISI. Um, so uh, 
there is a rudimentary collaboration, cooperation that's beginning. Um, it is not equal. It can't be because the military is, is way uh, better organized and trained and equipped. And the question of resources is one that you hear from the civilian side. There's just not enough resources directed towards them. Interestingly, a policeman in Karachi gets more money than a ranger soldier. But the ranger soldier is better equipped and better trained. And I think that's the gap that needs to be filled over time. Uh, after a lot of uh, toing and froing, uh, there's a new national coordinator for the National Counterterrorism Authority that is operating under the aegis of the interior minister. But again, there are no resources to support the work of that. And it's not at the right enough level, in my view, to be able to function effectively as a national coordinator that would earn the respect of everyone. Uh, the news out of Pakistan yesterday that they, they've appointed a new national security advisor, uh, who is a former uh, head of Southern Command in Quetta, General Nasser um, Khan Janjua. Uh, this may be a good sign in some ways, because it'll, it'll force the civil and the military to to bring their act together and give a much more coordinated approach to this battle. But the next step, in my view, is to, to have something similar for NACTA, to have a civil military team that can coordinate, at least in the initial phases, before the civilians have the ability to take over the entire uh, operation. So let me stop there, and uh, I'm sure Mr. Segel will fill, fill you in on the details. Thank you. Thank you. Shuja Segel. Thank you. Thank you, Bharat. Thank you, Shuja. Ladies and gentlemen, uh, Shuja has just given a very comprehensive overview of uh, the situation availing in Pakistan. I've had the pleasure of being at the Atlantic Council at almost uh, a year, two year intervals for the last four or five years. And about two years ago, um, I was asked a specific question. and will the army ever go into North Waziristan? And I, of course, without the authority of anybody, I said, yes, it will go into North Waziristan. Why, what did I found my observations on? It was founded on the fact that the military commanders on the battlefield were regularly pressing GHQ that we need to take them out now. We need to take them out now. We cannot give these people the space they have. They, and with the space, they have the logistics, they have the training areas, as you said, they have the hospitals, etc. So based on that, and based on what I felt was that in maybe in two years' time, these people who are now fighting in, at the highest level in Fata and Swat will eventually come into GHQ into areas of planning and execution. So it was, an, let us say, an educated guess at that time. And it turned out to be right. The army went into North Pakistan. And uh, the results are there. Now the uh, Pakistani Taliban, and I will differentiate them from the Awan Taliban, are in pockets in uh, various mountain hideouts they do not have the ability that they had, the movement of space, the logistics, uh, etc. all gone. And uh, the hideouts are now 
they are, they are now actually uh, being hunted down as we speak. All this was possible because of the transformation of the army post-2008. Between 2003 and 2008, I call that a phony war. A phony war because an army was sent into battle for counterinsurgency without adequate training, without adequate uh, equipment, without adequate manpower. And in 2008, it all changed because now entire units were taken and taken to counterinsurgency training for up to four to six months and before they went into fight. And the results were there in 2000, at the end of 2008, 2009, when, FATA, when SWAT was first cleared. And SWAT today is a model area to go to. SWAT was an area where even I thought that we would never even ever see the SWAT as a peaceful valley, as a beautiful place to visit. Now there is actually tourism going on, internal tourism going on in SWAT. So now these soldiers, now with battle-tested, combat-oriented, they went into Fata, went to North Uzbekistan, and cleared North Uzbekistan. And this happened, this, this thing about North Uzbekistan also happened because even though at that time, the Chief of Army Staff, General Kiani, who did this transformation post-2008, was still reluctant to go into North Uzbekistan for whatever reason. And it was only after the present chief came in and he decided that no, we will go into North Uzbekistan. In fact, informed the government uh, that we are going in, it was just at the end of the elections, the presidential, uh, presidential elections in 2013 and said, by the time the polling stops, our first troops are going into this thing. And the, the government, of course, went along with them and said, yes, this is with our sanction. And the results were very good. But obviously, as Shuja said, uh, the spillover has been into Afghanistan. And uh, there is no real coordination between uh, Afghanistan and Pakistan as, for, as to how to deal with uh, such militants. Historically, even though the Afghan Taliban and the Pakistan Taliban are totally different in their outlook, the fact of the matter remains that the Pakistan Taliban send across people to get battle inoculation, three months, six months, before they come back into Pakistan. So there is a nexus of sorts between the Afghan Taliban and the Pakistan Taliban, even though they don't listen to each other. Now, all this because from the majors, lieutenant colonels, brigadiers, major generals, lieutenant general, finally you had an army which was combat experience, combat with a lot of this thing. And like Shuja said, once you carry people, uh, your own dead colleagues, and you see your own dead men lying around you, you develop a sort of a sense of what you want to do. So even today, even though today you must have heard that General Raheel Sharif's posters are everywhere and as to what he has accomplished, particularly after the army public school incident where 145 children were killed by jihadists in Peshawar in a horrific incident. He, General Raheel Sharif is actually the son of all the generals in uh, uh, Pakistan today and Shuja just confirmed it when he talked about various people that he visited and he heard the same sort of thing from various uh, this thing. So 
you have a whole crop of now senior officers and behind them people who are dedicated, clearly determined to rid the country of extremism. Now, it is not that we did not dabble in it. Anybody would be wrong to say, come and say that we did not dabble in this. But obviously that is a thing of the past. And we now, as taken in, if you, if you consider what uh, should just, just talked about Karachi, I live in Karachi. In Karachi, uh, there would be about 25 to 30 target killings every day. Uh, at the drop of a hat, one political party could uh, bring the city to a standstill. It was the biggest commercial and industrial capital of the country, the only port, major port city. And whatever happened, stop it dead. You had people who got uh, held up for target killing. There are three parties that were ruling democratically elected parties. The Pakistan People's Party, the MQM, and the ANP, the Pathan uh, Party. They were in a coalition ruling together. Uh, well, a lot of sort of an understanding with each other. But if you, any of these target killers was caught and taken to a police station, within hours, he walked out free. But before he walked out free, he was fed with the best food that the police could supply him. And now, just to give you an idea, our esteemed president, Mr. Asif Zardari's petroleum minister, Dr. Asim Hussain, has been held by the rangers. Uh, he was held initially for, um, for providing, he has two hospitals, major hospitals in Karachi. And he, he was held initially for providing two special wards in the hospitals, which used to deal with these target killers and jihadis, etc. And they used to come in, get treated there, right? And uh, then nobody else used to come to know about them, and they used to leave from there. And he, of course, in return, was given them protection and, of course, earn money. But more than that, since he was a petroleum minister, he used to finance part of their operations. He was taking up to rupees, two, according to the statements which have come out now in the papers, two billion rupees a day. Uh, the vice chairman of the Fisherman's Society, which was also a substantial amount of funds being collected, gave a breakdown of the money that was given daily. And a lot of money went into it, went into uh, the jihadi elements, went into the political parties, went into criminal gangs. Because a terrorist cannot operate without organized crime. Organized crime is the basis on which a terrorist, I'm talking about the urban areas, got to provide him uh, documents, safe areas, explosives, weapons, armaments, transportations, you name it. All this costs money and the organized crime is the one which requires terrorism with that. And organized crime works on corruption. So you had this corruption, I'm just giving one example of the fisherman society and the petroleum side, where you had a lot of money which was cash 
which was then distributed. So as long as you had this money thing coming through, you had this thing. So therefore, uh, I beg to disagree with Fuja uh, uh, on one issue about the apex committees. The apex committees do exist. And the chief minister of Sindh protested to the core commander that uh, Dr. Asim Hussain has been held up and we were not informed about it. So he was informed that you were the last person you would have told because you would have been out of the country if we had told you. So this is the apex committee. Very well, frankly speaking, the army is informing the apex committee, but some, most of the time they're informing the apex committee after the fact as to what is happening. And that is the correct thing to do in the circumstances. Because now you have a lot of information. Dr. Asim Hussain has been talking 19 to the dozen. And you know, and now I believe the interrogators go to sleep, but he keeps talking. And he's giving a lot of information out as to where the money came from, where the money went, etc. Well, like him, there are many, many, many others. The terrorism can only go on if the money keeps coming. Some of the money did come from the various charities, from Middle Eastern sources. That has dried up to a great extent. Uh, the State Bank of Pakistan has put into effect certain uh, measures, which over the next couple of years will cut down the hawala drastically. And as long as the hawala exists, you will still have the money coming in. But above all, you turn around and say, what is the future? Are we going to be able to sustain this in the future? I believe we can. I believe we can because I think I've, uh, you know, on, the, on October 31st, I'll be going to the Pakistan Red Academy to have a reunion of 50 years of my commissioning with my fellow officers. We've lived 50 years to see this day, where you have army officers dedicated to one thing alone. And above all, which is most important, very clear about one thing, not to take over the government at any time. Right. If the government is ever taken over, has been this thing, it will be in extraordinary circumstances. And I cannot predict that, but the point is, I feel that there is a feeling within the armed forces, very clear, that it is the civilians who must run the government because they know how to run the government, right? We will run the people who do that to make sure that you cut down on the corruption. At the same time, the National Accountability Bureau has gone into overdrive separately. And they've got a lot of people in, in, in the custody They've done a, doing a lot of investigations. They've taken people, they've arrested people uh, across the board. Uh, at the moment, of course, the maximum people that have been picked up, the uh, target killers, et cetera, were from the MQM and from the PPP. Uh, you must have heard, I don't know if you've heard of a gentleman called Uzair Baloch, nice guy. He used to play football with the skulls of people that used to behead in the Liari football ground with a whole lot of audience. He used to ask them to come and watch them. <clears throat> he was taken into custody, escaped. He stayed in custody in UAE. And after a long drawn out uh, request from the Pakistan government, ultimately now he's in the hands of the Pakistan authorities. And he's singing 19 to the dozen also. 
So we'll know a lot of more information what was happening. Um, Pakistan clearly today is on the main. Clearly. There's no doubt about it. We have to, we have a lot of, um, I would say, history to walk away from. Uh, we have a lot of prejudices to walk away from. But we're not going to mend our future. We're not going to sustain our future unless we have the courage to walk away from those prejudices and those future. Now, uh, a lot of, uh, you know, we hear a lot of things in Pakistan. November 17th, 2014, when the Afghan president visited GHQ. And uh, I've had the privilege of seeing uh, the videotape of that visit. And it was amazing. And a lot of hope arose in the minds of a lot of people, good knowledgeable people, that have rapprochement with Afghanistan is on the way because there is no way. There has to be a solution where the pa Pakistan government and the Afghan government have to work together. You will not find, you will not be able to do this in a vacuum. You will always have this thing. If you keep on throwing muck at each other, you know, the, the Pakistani operative operating out of a uh, uh, out of a place in the uh, in the doctor's hospital in Kunduz, right? Without even knowing how did the, how did you know he was Pakistani to start with, right? How do you know that he was there, you know, operating from there? Now, obviously, anything happens in Afghanistan, it is blamed on Pakistan. I think that is very now, at least now, it's unfair. I just want to take the take the uh, career of one officer. Uh, to show why it's unfair. Uh, Brigadier Rizwan Akhtar fought the uh, jihadis in the counterinsurgency in Fata, uh, first in Swat and then in Fata, first as a brigadier, then as a major general. Uh, from there, he had, according to his own this thing, in his brigade and division, he lost over four or five hundred dead and about four or 5,000 people injured. From there, he came to Karachi, became the DG Rangers. And from DG Rangers, he's now graduated to become the DG ISI. So if I were to understand this thing correctly, this man who was fighting the jihadis uh, for five out of six years, has done graduated out, and now he's in DG ISI, and now somehow they are feeding the Taliban to kill Pakistani soldiers. It's, mind-boggling. It's not correct. It, they could have, there are, I'm sure there are links between the Afghan Taliban and the Pakistani intelligence agencies. Why not? There are, I'm sure there are links between the CIA and them also at places. The point is that on the ground, the practical reality of it is that it's got to be close coordination between Pakistan and Afghanistan, particularly the armed forces, for there to be a solution to the problem. And there will be a solution to the problem. The, uh, the Afghan the Afghan may be stretched at the moment. We may say to them that, uh, you know, but you, you cannot fight. But they took the fight into Kunduz, right? They, after all, they took the Taliban out of Kunduz. You take the positive side out of it, right? Similarly, they are holding ground in a lot of areas. I hope now, with, and which is a welcome uh, 
I would say, um, very welcome in Pakistan is that the American forces are going to go beyond uh, 2016 in Afghanistan. That is very welcome in Pakistan because Pakistan did not know what to do if that vacuum had been created. That would have disintegrated. Because, ladies and gentlemen, just think about one thing. Which was the most fertile ground for the IS? The most fertile ground for the IS was Pakistan and Afghanistan. Most fertile ground. And yet, let me tell you, it's not going to happen. It's not going to happen in Pakistan. It's not going to happen in Afghanistan. You may say whatever you feel like, but here is an area where the Taliban have been fought not to a standstill, but to have been almost eliminated in this thing. There is a counter-terrorism effort that is required. Like Shuja was saying, a national uh, counter-terrorism authority, NACTA, if it is activated properly, properly led, with proper coordination between the intelligence agencies, you will have a situation where they will be able to fight the terrorism. And obviously also the infiltration of the uh, jihadi groups into the mainline parties. Some of these mainline parties in some areas, they would not get, they would, uh, constituencies, uh, their uh, representatives would not get elected without their support. So I think, you know, uh, and again, going back to something Shuja said about the Apex Committee, and uh, Shuja recently visited the core command who just retired there, Naveed Zaman. And uh, when the first Apex Committee met, one of the mo person most associated with the jihadi groups was a minister in the government, was sitting there in the Apex Committee, Rana Sanola. Naveed Zaman walked out. And he told the chief minister, says, we will have a smaller Apex Committee, but we will tell you whom we would like in the Apex Committee and would not like in the Apex Committee. So, it is true that the army has now started, you know, really calling most of the shots. But most of the shots is national security affairs. Most of the shots in this thing. The anti-corruption effort is still being led by the National Accountability Bureau, which is not army run. Yes, only in Karachi today, because of the fact that a lot of the money from corruption was going into organized crime, going into terrorism, they have held up people for corruption. And because they've held up people for corruption, there's a lot of screaming going on from the political parties because they do not want uh, this corruption because they are the hardcore of these political parties. But I think somewhere along the line, one has to take a hard decision, and that decision has been taken. I think, uh, you know, you, uh, I was on, uh, the other day, I wrote an article about extension and integration, which I said General Rahil Shri should not get an extension, right? And I meant it, because an extension, where it does it, it stops a whole crop of generals from getting their due. And I think General Rahil is just a sum of all that. Of course, I have a different viewpoint of that. I, I think the Chairman Joint Chief of Staff's Committee is a, just a, is nothing in Pakistan. It's just a, uh, once I asked a question, what does the Chairman Joint Chief of Staff Committee do for a living? And of course, I got a reaction from that. But the point is, it is true. It is a, it is a, it is a post that can be properly activated. It can function. And maybe when General Sharif, uh, Sharif is about to retire, you may consider him as a possible candidate for a 
expanded role of a chairman joint chief of staffs committee. But uh, at the present time, I will repeat that he is the sum of all the generals, the general crop of generals that are waiting behind, and the crop of generals who have just retired, among them whom somebody that Shuja visited the other day, Nasir Khan Janjua, who has just become notified, I think, he's also coming to Washington, I think, tomorrow, as the national security advisor. He was the core commander there. Two other generals who retired, Naveed Zaman and uh, Ijaz Chaudhary. Ijaz Chaudhary remade, reorganized the Rangers, handed over to Rizwan Akhtar, became core commander, continued the good work. Naveed Mukhtar and Bilal Akbar are really doing all the good work that they put the foundations of. So, ladies and gentlemen, my theory on this, on the future of Pakistan, is very clear. We have a very bright future. We have a bright future because people who are supposed to do their jobs or I would say, according to the job description, do that. Maybe the army is doing a little more than that at the moment. But eventually, I think it will fall to the lot of the politicians who remain after this corruption drives in over and elections are held on a free and fair basis that you have a fully democratic, resurgent Pakistan, which is economically prosperous. And we have the wherewithal and the means to do it. And I think now you have a situation ready-made for progress beyond the, uh, I would say, the abyss, dark abyss that we thought about it two years ago. Thank you. Thank you, Ekram. I'll start off from where you left off, saying that you know, um, you have you said you have a bright future because people are do were supposed to be doing their jobs are doing their jobs more than one hundred percent of what they can be doing. That's your assessment. But I think there are some still some criticisms, especially in this town, that Pakistan should do more, and the people who are supposed to do their jobs are supposed to be doing more than what they're supposed to be doing. How would you respond to those critics, especially ahead of the visit, Nawaz Sharif's visit next week? Barak, I'm going to start off on a different tack. Uh, Europe is now faced with a huge refugee problem. Huge problem. Something which is an extraordinary thing. Right? Pakistan has had, for the last 35 years, 3 million refugees on its soil. 3 million refugees. Out of which 1.7 million are in camps and 1.3 million. We have been sustaining these refugees. We just do more mantra, I accept it. We need, certainly, I think, like I said, we need to coordinate more. I think instead of passing on a blame game on each other, I think if, 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 if the president of one hierarchy, and I was very much impressed with President Ashraf Ghani's this thing till such time that he was derailed on, uh, you know, after the Afghan uh, Taliban talks fell through. But that was for no fault of Pakistan. The, if, if Mullah Omar died two years ago and um, people didn't know about it, and now that it's come out and the Afghan Taliban suspended talks, you have to give time to this Mullah Mansoor uh, to establish his writ, right? And I think that once he established it, I think my own feeling is that the Afghan Taliban also, and it's a, it's a feeling based on any number of uh, factors. I think they also realize that at the end of the day, they have to come to the negotiating table and talk to uh, the Afghan government. 
But there are, uh, I would say, interests which would like to keep this uh, conflict going, not Pakistan. Pakistan's uh, future lies in prosperity. We've got the China-Pakistan economic corridor, five, uh, five, uh, $45 billion, $46 billion coming through. Uh, roads, railways, highways, uh, you know, bridges, power stations, uh, you name it. The thing, etc. Now, when that infrastructure comes through, that amount of money that comes through, the amount of work that comes through, etc., etc., is going to be passing close, not too far from the Afghan border. Unless you have relative peace in that area, unless you have, uh, you know, uh, something like security in that area, that's not going to work. So it's a, it is in the interest of Pakistan it works. It's in the interest of Pakistan to work with the Afghan authorities, right? It's in the interest of Pakistan. That Pakistan would do anything to get the uh, Afghan Taliban to the negotiating table. But like uh, I think Shuja said a few days, you can't, you can't, have, uh, you can't uh, ask people to come negotiating people while you're trying to kill them also, right? But that's also a little bit of this thing, because Pakistan is not killing the Afghan Taliban. Pakistanis, the army at the moment, engaged in killing the Taliban in Pakistan, which are totally different, totally different from the Afghan Taliban. In, in, uh, in the thing, etc. Even the ideologies, they mismatch, and if you see, you know, they have a lot of rough edges. They do feed on each other for many reasons. But at the end of the day, you will have to have cooperation between the Afghans and the Pakistanis. Do you want to elaborate? I know you touched upon the Afghan, the China-Pakistan corridor last week. Um, let me say two things. One, uh, I think there's there's been a lot of focus on the kinetic operations, particularly the military operations. Um, I think there are two areas where Pakistan needs to concentrate for purely selfish reasons. Uh, one is uh, in, in addressing the issue of militancy and sectarianism within the country, uh, which is a huge problem, particularly in the Punjab. And uh, that is going to be quite critical because that is more in the realm of the civilian authorities. And I think, as Mr. Seigel also hinted, there are many political alliances that involve uh, political parties and the sectarian groups uh, in the Punjab. And the, those have to be uh, broken. Uh, because if you're going to start discriminating between the good militants and the bad militants, the ones that are fighting the state and the ones that are not fighting the state, uh, then you're going to leave this problem unresolved. Uh, the other which is related is the question of curriculum reform. The educational system has been permeated for uh, more than a couple of decades with highly uh, suspect uh, materials uh, that have been based on um, a misreading of Islamic uh, ideology and texts. And until those are removed and you have a much more objective and a neutral education system and curriculum, uh, this problem is going to rise again and again. It's going to affect new generations, not just in the civilian uh, society, but also in the military. I think that's a serious threat. Um, but to answer your specific question, um, you really cannot conceive of an effective CPEC, you know, China-Pakistan Economic Corridor, unless you see it in a regional context. Um, and that's why uh, I'd suggested in an event uh, last week here that uh, there should be an effort made within Pakistan to actually accelerate the construction of the Western Corridor 
of this framework, uh, the, the economic corridor. Um, if the Western corridor is given prominence, um, then uh, it'll pass through Khyber Pakhtunkhwa and Balochistan all the way down to Gwadar. It will offer an opportunity for a natural uh, tributary of Afghan connection. Um, so you can then go into other infrastructure development, including the development of the Kabul River Gorge, uh, which is a project that is just asking to be developed jointly and managed jointly by the two countries. When you have that joint uh, ownership uh, of that territory and creating jobs and, and settling the border issue, uh, not on a legal basis, but de facto settlement of the border issue, because you make the border irrelevant, then I think uh, Afghanistan and Pakistan will have a more normal relationship. I just like to add on to that, that uh, actually the Western Corridor, uh, the army got funds for making a lot of roads in uh, Balochistan. And what they did was a little bit, it was a little cute. What they did was that they uh, put a 600-kilometer route from Gwadar upwards towards Quetta, the highest priority. And that by the end of December, that road will be through. So as a matter of fact, 50% of the so-called Western Corridor will always already be a fait accompli, right, in that sense. Now, it does leave the area within Balochistan and Punjab, that area, right? And that, of course, I think they will be encouraging now that the person who was responsible for that road, uh, Nasir Khan Janjua, is the national security advisor. So I would think that uh, he would continue uh, making sure that the Western Corridor, this thing, because you're right in that sense that unless you have the Western Corridor, you will not have uh, the, the consequences, the economic consequences that you would expect from the China-Pakistan economic corridor. Yes. Drilling down on that, you know, uh, I know this is part of the broader geopolitics and stuff, but what do the Chinese see? What are the assurances that the Chinese are getting in private or in public that the rest of us are not seeing to put $45 billion into somebody who calls it the most volatile and the most secure challenge, security challenge region? I think, uh, you know, in Pakistan, we were very quiet. Thing, you know, we always look to China for security purposes. We say, okay, Chinese, our Chinese are helping us, right? But I think this particular corridor is in the Chinese interest. It's not so much in Pakistan's interest. Pakistan, of course, is the major beneficiary of it, obviously. And of course, we would want it. But it is in the Chinese interest because they did want, they call it, incidentally, one belt, one road. In China, it is known as one belt, one road. And this is very clear that they say that uh, this thing. In, uh, I may be allowed to, this thing. In 1970, I was uh, flying uh, LO-83 helicopter with the Pakistan Army Aviation and attached to the People's Liberation Army, uh, which were making the road, the Karakoram Highway at that time. Two divisions were making the road. And my interpreter was fresh out of college. Um, um, he was, um, he, we used to get together, became friends. Uh, he used to speak Urdu also. And you know, at that point of time, there were a lot of casualties among the Chinese because they used to bore holes in the rock, uh, uh, tap it with explosives and blow it up, sometimes 
used to go off and they used to have a lot of casualties and we used to ferry these casualties to the base stations, base hospitals. One day, you know, I sat down, I was a young man, 25 years old, seeing all these people wounded, dying. And I told this guy, I said, uh, why are you stupid Chinese uh, doing this? Uh, you know, this is a road from nowhere and going to nowhere. I'd been to Kashgar and Kashgar was a one street town at that time, you know, there's nothing there. I went to, I was taken to Urumqi and from the airport to the uh, city when we went, the small uh, bus that we had, had a coal stove in between to heat us, right? So, you know, I was pretty harried and he said, uh, yes, you, we are not stupid, you are stupid. You know, we are five years, uh, you think in terms of five, ten years, we think in terms of fifty, hundred years. Ambassador, he became, uh, he was, uh, in fact, Consul General, Chang was Consul General in Houston for three years, four years. Went back uh, to Pakistan as the ambassador there from 1998 to 2005. And uh, he, um, um, you know, recently met me in Beijing and he said, he said, who's stupid? We are stupid or you're stupid? So, you know, I mean, I really, frankly speaking. And he said something and I was, I, I was speaking at the National Institute of Strategic Communication at the Beijing University and, the two, and with the China Group of Companies Association uh, to a conglomerate of companies I was amazed by this, the question that you asked me. You know, I was, here's China going to do a lot for us, this $46 billion is going to come up. It was in the Chinese interest to have this corridor. They're determined about it. They're determined to have this road link, right? So it is in their interest primarily. This is their lifeline into uh, the Middle East, the lifeline into the Indian Ocean, right? Lifeline, etc. And the best thing about it would be, the best thing about it would be that if you get India to come in with us, to link up with the China-Pakistan economic order, because with India in, then you have the entire South Asia linked to Central Asia, entire thing linked to the world, really. It would be a tremendous uh, boost to the entire uh, this thing. So I think at the end of the day, it's more in the Chinese interest to have the corridor than the Pakistani. Gentlemen, please identify yourself. Sure. Yeah. Uh, Doug Brooks with the uh, Afghan American Chamber of Commerce. Uh, Ashraf Ghani, who uh, in Afghanistan, who, who spearheaded the uh, thank you, Ashraf Ghani, who, who spearheaded the uh, um, uh, the new relationship with Pakistan, has received a great deal of criticism uh, in Afghanistan for doing that. Um, is he going to be able to sustain this uh, these agreements and and uh, be able to sustain the, the support from the Afghanistan side of the border to, to address the uh, militant problems? Uh, I guess that's... Well, I can't be clairvoyant about what happens to Ashraf Ghani, but I hope he does. Because I think he is the best hope uh, that this region has. His, uh, his vision, his, uh, his, uh, his feelings, the thing, etc. He's been, you know, the NDSI and people, the coterie has tried to bribe him there, but I think at the end of the day, Ashraf Ghani survives. That means the relationship with Pakistan and Afghanistan will survive, and I think ultimately peace in the region will be sustained. Yeah, I'm Shaquille Ahmed, PhD scholar over here. Uh, after a successful test of Pakistani drones strikes in the Waziristan, and at the same time, there have been a tacit understanding on the U.S. drones in that area. What 
is the reason that we are not able to have a cooperation or a collaborative approach with the US on the same area just to avoid the violation of uh, sovereignty issue. And uh, another question, that how much we have done at grassroots level to for sectarian issue, uh, though we have work on curriculum and other things. One thing I have, I have observed that in the military we have the mosques which are very well operated. Like uh, I would say that more secular kind of mosques are in the military institutions. Why we are not able to duplicate or the same kind of things in the uh, society? Because this is not the issue, extremism is not the issue which we are just tackling with the terrorism. It's the issue which we have to address at societal level as well. I think the first question that you said about drones, my understanding, and maybe I'm wrong, but I know a lot of officers who are now brigadiers and major general rank who were posted in Afghanistan with the Americans and identifying, uh, you know, potential targets, right? And two, three years or four years ago, this arrangement stopped for some reason. I think tacitly, uh, despite the public uh, denunciation of the drone attacks, the Pakistan government was the beneficiary of this because most of the drones, who did they hit? They didn't hit any uh, friends of Pakistan. They were hitting those people that were uh, killing Pakistanis. So I think, I think there was a tacit understanding which goes on. Well, you know, we have a limited drone capacity now, right? Uh, you know, my own, own company operates uh, unarmed aerial vehicles to look after pipelines. We have a lot of uh, we have a lot of, uh, let us say, indigenous capability now, the heavier, this thing, etc. I hope we are able to, uh, you know, keep that. I'm sure we didn't get it um, out of our own genius. I suppose we, we did some, a lot of, uh, you know, reverse engineering to get this. But the point is that ultimately I think there is the tacit understanding remains. Even without physical presence gone from Afghanistan, the tacit understanding remains. And there is sharing of information at that level. I, th this is what I believe in. I do not know for sure, and I will be amiss if I say that. The second part of it is, I think the, uh, one of the best moments of, the, of Pakistan, the Pakistan army, was when they refused to go into Yemen. You cannot imagine how much we have lost as far as the Saudis are concerned and the UAE is concerned, etc., etc. We are almost persona non grata. Right. right. I personally, on the board of Bank Al-Fala, run by Sheikh Nehan for 16 years, well, I was politely told to retire uh, two, three months ago. Right. But the point is that for us, it was unthinkable for the very reason that you say our army is integrated. There's no Shia Sunni within the army. Our mosques are integrated. There's no Shia Sunni in the thing. In a, in a lot of areas, there are Shia mosques and there are Sunni mosques, but in a lot of things, they think. But you will not find at the public level any animosity. The, the animosity is by the proxy wars that have been carried on between Iran and Saudi Arabia through the extreme uh, you know, organizations which are there. Not at the, not at the public level. You may not, you've never heard of Shia Sunni riots. You may, you may hear of Shia Sunni riots in, even in India. You, you have Shia Sunni riots even in Bangladesh. You will not hear of Shia Sunni rights in Pakistan. So I think it is only at the, uh, at the extreme levels 
and for for better or for worse, those are the extremists that we should hunt down. So we should hunt them down and eliminate this thing once for all. I have a, uh, my company, my group has 15,000 people. I'm proud to say that many of my officers are Shia officers. We never come across this problem of Shia Sunni, right? And this is the civilian side, right? And the army side, of course, flatly they said nothing doing. We'll not go into Yemen because we'll not because then we'll be seen as part of the Sunni coalition going after the Shia that we will not. Thank you. Uh, Bill Milam from the Woodrow Wilson Center. I have two questions, really, uh, and they're for sort of both of you. Uh, this contradiction between killing tally, uh, the bad Taliban and trying to get the good Taliban, if there are any such things, to the table strikes me as a little uh, of an oversimplification. That, in fact, uh, the problem really is that there are, if I can use these oversimplified terms to save time, there are bad Taliban in Pakistan who are actually Afghan Taliban. And I, you, uh, Suja, who said, talked about the blocking of several passes. But I want to ask, because the, the problem is that some of those bad Afghan Taliban are really proxies of the Pakistan military. Now, would the, if the, if the Haqqani group wanted to go through those passes, would the Pakistani army kill them or not? And that's sort of the main problem in this whole, pro in this, you know, dust up, this rough patch in the relations with Afghanistan. But more to the point, to get the uh, Afghan Taliban to the table, we're going to have to keep them, uh, actually not just keep them from getting more ground, but actually push them back from the ground they've now gained in Afghanistan because according to a New York, I think it was a New York Times article I saw just a few days ago, they now control or at least contest about 20% of the territory in Afghanistan. They're on a roll. In other words, why should they come to the negotiating table when they think they're going to uh, win anyway? The second question, that's a long question, I'm sorry. The second question is about Karachi. Uh, we had a couple of other uh, Pakistanis, uh, uh, your compatriots, uh, well, maybe not yours, but anyway, uh, uh, Mr. Siegel's compatriots in town just a week ago, and um, heard from them about the Karachi operation. And it seems like that's, uh, that's a very, very complicated operation, and it seems like uh, that there are still some holes in it. For example, uh, all of the, these, the whole, you know, and Mr. Siegel correctly talked about the, the crime, the criminal elements. We, I understand from, from these people that these mafias, there are mafias for kidnapping and mafias for extortion and mafias for this and that and drugs and the other thing. And they all work, they all sort of meet together. You might even have a mafia meeting of sorts, I don't know, inter-mafia meeting, so to speak. But these mafias are being beheaded slowly by the rangers and uh, 
but their connections, and they are connected to the political party, so that makes it even more complicated. But as far as these people could tell, the mafias are not being dismantled. They're just being beheaded, but they are, you know, they're like snakes. They're still going to be living uh, without their heads, and they'll grow new heads. Now, in other words, the army doesn't seem to be, or the rangers really, don't seem to be interested in taking down these mafias completely, which would take a very long time, much longer than three years, I suspect. So I just wondered what your comments were on both of those questions, both of you. Let, let me start and then maybe Mr. Seigel can fill in some of the details. Let me start with your second question first. Uh, that was a question I posed to the DG Rangers and to the Corps Commander, both. Um, they, their re reply is that they're in for the long haul. They have 5,000 rangers that are now posted inside the city, permanently there. They've opened hotlines, which the citizens are now using in order to inform them on who the bad guys are. So all these so-called snakes that you identify, uh, they now are told on a daily basis uh, about dozens of these people. You know, so and so in such and such house has arms. So and so has weapons. So and so is a target killer. Uh, so and so has been hitting us up for money, insurance rackets, and all that protection money. Uh, so. And you're right, there, there are political connections uh, because all the political parties have used these groups either directly or indirectly to, to raise funds and uh, for influence peddling. Um, with the more permanent location and with uh, a much more concentrated effort at cleansing the police force, because the senior police officer told me that roughly half the police in Karachi are tainted, and they've been identified. Only half? I, I have no way of verifying it. I'm just conveying what I learned. And so about 7,000, roughly, are, have been identified as being suspect. And therefore, they are not brought into many of the sensitive operations. They don't get to be sent on raids because they would call ahead and tell the guys we're coming. Et cetera, et cetera. So um, clearly, this is going to be, it's not going to be a simple one two punch. You know, you go in and you clear the area, and, and that's the end of it. Uh, it's an urban environment, it's very complex, and uh, it's not something that the military is used to. They're going to have to rely on the civilians to pick up steam, to, to get their organization together, to get rid of the bad eggs, and then um, take it forward. Um, it is for the long, long haul. That is why I said it's too early to pronounce. So three uh, years is probably not... Uh, I, I don't know what kind of time frame is going to be put on it, but it really has to be a civil society effort and not just a military uh, effort alone. Um, now, I've forgotten what your first question was. So the, yeah. tali the Taliban, <laughs> Afghan Taliban. The, Afghan, the, the good and the bad. The good and the bad. The good and the bad. Uh, as Mr. Segel said, uh, and, and I think this is, in 2008, when I went to North Waziristan, I was already hearing from younger officers and from colonels that commanded regiments. They were losing their men to people that 
were being protected by the Haqqani and by other groups that were on the right side of the military at that time, ostensibly. Because there are no tight borders and, you know, people work on tribal affiliations and, and uh, when narco financing is involved, then even tribal affiliations don't matter. It's who's got the money. Uh, and as you know, in the military, when you're a commanding officer, you lose one person. That for you is a very big deal. You don't want to lose even a single person. So if you go back and you read my report that I did on Fatah at that time for, for Dave Petraeus, for um, uh, CSIS, and then also uh, learning by doing for the Atlantic Council, I wrote about this, that they were unhappy with this, and they actually wanted the military leadership in GHQ to do something about it. Uh, it's just that the military leadership at the time was uh, was trying to work out deals with local satraps in North Waziristan and South Waziristan and other places. Uh, well, that has now changed. And I think um, if they're going to succeed, uh, there are no good or bad. Now, the army chief is saying that. The question is, you know, how effectively will he be able to translate that into action on the border? And then, militarily speaking, uh, you really have to get their attention by military force first. So you're right. Uh, There's an oversimplification. Kill them or bring them to the, uh, to the conference table. Uh, it's not as simple as that. Uh, you, you first show them that you have overwhelming force. You establish yourself in a position of strength. And that forces them into coming to the table. And then you can talk to them. Uh, all the lessons from counterinsurgencies elsewhere in the world have shown that you never have a military victory. The insurgency ends when you talk your way out of it. You find out what it is that makes things work and then agree on how to, to go about it. The only ones that keep growing about their success in that regard are the Sri Lankans who feel that you know the only way you can win an insurgency is, is by killing people by the thousands. And I don't think that is, is a universally accepted uh, method. Maybe too early to see in Sri Lanka. Exactly, yes. I just like to add one thing about <clears throat> Karachi. Actually, I uh, said I run a private security company in Karachi. I have about 3,000 guards in Karachi. And we guard the American Consulate General, among other things, many of the banks, etc. Yeah. Yes. So, sir. Um, you're very right. There's a sand mafia, there's a water mafia, there's a transportation mafia. You name it, there's a mafia. But what is happening is that by going after now the sources of money, sources of corruption, the fisherman society, the vice chairman of the fisherman society is in custody. <clears throat> and he has been giving out a lot of information. Right? Dr. Asim Hussain, ex-petroleum minister, is in custody, giving out a lot of information. Now, going out to them, they've got the information necessary to dismantle the mafias. Right? Now, I believe, my own belief is that three years is a good timetable. Right? It will not be eliminated altogether. You cannot eliminate mafias in any part of the world completely. Right? But at the same time, the amount of domination that they had over Karachi city, that will be done quite a bit. We ourselves 
as a private security company, you used to live under threat all the time, all the time. And you know, it was only in the last year that that threat has receded, that we've heard there's personal you know, threats coming to us, to my family, etc. So I think my own feeling is that three years is a reasonable time. It will not be eliminated completely, but it will be dismantled to the extent that it will be like any other metropolitan city. Shahid Yusuf. Yeah, thank you. Uh, Shahid Yusuf, um, questions out to both of you. Um, you mentioned that, and very rightly, that uh, paramilitary or police operation is only part of the solution to the problems of a Karachi or even for the Fatah region. What it does is it creates certain space for other act actions to be taken on an economic front, on a social front, building new institutions, soft institutions, hard infrastructure, and so on. And that requires long-range thinking on the part of the military and the part of the civilian authorities and in close coordination amongst them. Do you see a lot of that happening? That is, are people looking beyond just the winning of an insurgency in Karachi or an insurgency in the north and thinking five and 10 years ahead how to build up that economic base and that institutional base that will be needed to ensure that it stays safe? The second question I had is, has to do with the so-called Silk Road, the Western Corridor. You pointed out um, the Chinese stand to gain on two counts. One is they probably will expand their trade. So their exports of manufacturers will flood this part of the world to the extent it hasn't flooded as yet. The second is a strategic one, that is they want a port which their Blue Seas Navy would be able to utilize and to safeguard the passageway of oil. But what does Pakistan get out of it? And if it's going to be spillover activity or crowding in of investment along this corridor, what sort of time horizon do we have in mind and what do we expect to get by way of GDP growth out of this? And how soon? I mean, you know, it, yes, I can imagine there'll be more agriculture, there'll be a bit more trade and so on, but this may be peanuts for a long time. How much do you expect to get out of it? To your first question, um, I'm not so positive about it. I don't think there's too much of thinking going on, right? There is, there is a uh, work on it, certainly. But that type of positive development that you would expect totally in such circumstances to avail of that uh, opportunity that you would get, that thing, I don't think that is, and that is lacking, except I must tell you that in FATA, it is, in, sorry, in SWAT, it has happened to an extent, which is a good sign, right? In FATA, it is not yet close to happening, right? There's a lot of work to be done. So you require thinking of that side. As far as the Chinese corridor is concerned, yes, you're right. The Chinese have a strategic advantage out of it, they, et cetera. But at the same time, the roads which are built through, the bridges, they're going through underdeveloped areas. That underdeveloped areas, you will, you will have uh, now schools and colleges and hospitals and you know, townships and especially economic zones, et cetera, et cetera. You will, the crowding of the cities on the eastern side, which is all along the, the, at the east of the Indus at the moment, would probably shift to an extent on the western Indus. You'll have a lot of skilled manpower also come back from the Middle East to fill that gap. The, particularly the coastline from Karachi to Gwadar, which nobody talks about, it is actually a gold coast. It is 
four to five hundred kilometers of sunswept beaches. Sunswept beaches, ninety-eight percent of the year, no rain, etc. Clean, clean, pristine water, etc. You know, you can have uh, new. You have Armara port there. You have Pasni port there. You have other places where you could establish, you know, new uh, economic zones there. So there is opportunity there. Now, the, how much that opportunity is catered for? How much that opportunity is? Uh, this thing is, of course, I'm not in government, so I cannot say that. But I hope somebody in government is thinking about it. Let me just add, Shahid. I should say that Shahid has been doing some seminal work on mega cities. So Karachi is now under his focus. Um, so that's why this very pertinent question. Um, most of the in Chinese investment is on infrastructure. And then the second substantial proportion is on energy. So there will be benefit from energy because you know every ounce of additional energy that Pakistan can get will mean it can revive its flailing uh, industries and flagging industries. So uh, that can only be positive. Uh, but the new opportunities really will have to come not from the government but from the civil sector. And I think this is where the the business uh, leaders in Karachi particularly need to get their act together. Uh, in answer to your First question, I think there's not much being done within the government in Islamabad. The one institution that was thinking in terms of longer term vision, uh, 2025, uh, etc., uh, was the Planning Commission. And uh, because of uh, bureaucratic infighting, it's been attacked viciously by other ministers in the cabinet who feel that it has uh, exercised too much control over their investment portfolios. And so uh, I think that's probably going to meet a, a sorry fate uh, in the end. Uh, but in the end, I think it's really going to depend a lot on what civil society and particularly the business leaders in Pakistan can do in terms of longer term thinking. Uh, if they don't, then Pakistan is going to be subject to the same short term thinking that all civilian governments are prone to, which is wait till the next election and then we'll see. And that's really not the best way of going about it, as the, as the Chinese uh, have shown us. So uh, I think that, that would be my, my response on, um, on, on what benefits uh, will accrue to Pakistan. Five minutes more, and I have three hands. So first you, and you, and you. And we'll collect the questions, and then you can have your final word. Thank you. Uh, I'm Akbar Khwaja, former World Bank official. Uh, my question is to Mr. Segal. Most of your focus was fought our western border as far as internal security of Pakistan is concerned. Also, you alleged that PPP Petroleum Minister was one of the prime da-da-da a couple of times you mentioned. You did not focus on eastern border where many suspected or confirmed target killer have confirmed that they received a training from Rao. Also in Balochistan, several areas. Uh, my second part of the question is, you think uh, the forthcoming visit of Prime Minister of Pakistan, Nawaz Sharif, you think this issue will be raised? Um, I'll just take two more questions. And yeah, I'll... Thank you. The gentleman there. Thank you, I'm uh, Brunson McKinley, visiting from out of town. I would be... Um, uh, very pleased to hear a few 
short comments by the panel on Osama bin Laden and the Seymour Hirsch article, which continues to bubble around in the, in the Western press. Um. Arif Ansar with Polytech. Very short question. I know that Atlantic Council is involved in the mega security conference uh, in India, uh, and they just had a recent event covering those. Is there any parallel with what Karachi is facing and what may be under the purview of the mega secu security conference or mega city security? Since uh, you know a lot of bigger cities are dealing with similar issues. Um, security related, and then there is the concept of city-state, etc., intermingled with it. Yeah. No, you're right. You have a lot of uh, issues with India. And one of the issues with India is that uh, for the first time, instead of non-state actors, uh, which India talks about, we have state actors talking about causing harm to Pakistan. Ajit Doval, and the defense minister and all that. But I think, you know, if you look at it, the uh, relations have worsened over the, uh, this thing. And there's no doubt that there's now concrete information about uh, the MQM cadres being trained in India, etc. And similarly in Balochistan, you know, Harbiyar Khan Mari is now in New Delhi. Right before that, Baramdag Mukti was given refuge in the embassy in Kabul before he went out. So obviously, uh, there is interference. And I'm, I'm not privy, but I, we know it because a lot of the time, a lot of evidence has been handed over to India on this issue. And there is concern about it. And uh, I suppose, you know, they have the same grouse with us uh, as far as uh, this thing concerned. But there is certainly concern, and I'm sure uh, this thing is, I am sure because the National Security Advisor who's coming along with um, the Prime Minister is uh, General Nasir Khan Janjua. And I, he was in Balochistan, and he was the person privy to this. So I think this is certainly going to come up, definitely. Now, as far as, uh, you know, uh, Branson's question about Osama bin Laden, Seymour Hirsch is concerned, I think one should take that with a pinch of salt. You know, I don't think there's a lot of, there's a lot of things which are, do not gel there. I think uh, there is no doubt Osama bin Laden was there. There's no doubt uh, he was taken out, right, etc. All these things, you know, including the helicopter losing a tail, etc., etc. I'm a helicopter pilot. I'm not easily going to give a tail up, you know. And because the tail goes and you're all over the place, so you know, it's not an easy thing to do. So I think that is take a pinch of salt. As far as the third issue is concerned, about mega, yes, I think uh, you know Karachi. Obviously, one of the major, major cities which has a mega, mega security problem, major mega city which has security problem. I think that is a very good case study, you know, one can study. But I, I suppose whoever is planning this will think about it at a later stage. Yeah, if you have some money to give to the Atlantic Council, I'm sure that we, <laughs> Bharat would be happy to organize a conference on Karachi. Uh, but you're right, it, it's a very critical factor. Uh, I would just say on Osama bin Laden, uh, it's, it's a, a wonderful duel of, of narratives. On the one hand, uh, Sai Hirsch and his uh, extreme uh, confidence in, in his theories based on 
primarily uh, a couple of major sources that he hasn't identified. And on the other hand, the rebuttal by Mark Bowden, uh, which basically defends his book, The Finish, uh, by saying that in order uh, for uh, Cy Hirsch's account to be accurate, then everyone that he spoke to in the US government from President Obama down uh, would have to be part of the conspiracy of lies and that they all lied to him. Uh, so uh, I, I've tried to talk to a couple of the key uh, people in Pakistan and the response I got was stonewalling. Um, uh, very specific language was uh, that uh, they would much rather not share uh, what their knowledge is about the affair. So uh, I think it's a murky uh, situation, uh, but perhaps not as clear-cut as either Sai or Mark Barden both portray. Maybe somewhere in between there's the truth. Thank you very much. Thank you.